Welcome to another edition of Mr. Nice Guy. I'm Ben Slowey, and I'm joined today by uh, someone who I've literally, like, known, like, pretty much my entire life. We went to elementary school, middle school, and high school together. Um, grew up around the corner from each other um, in Heather Hill, Fossmer, Illinois. And uh, he, he uh, currently um, lives uh, in Topeka, Kansas. And he is actually, he's drafted a piece of legislation called the Hands Up Act, which would sentence police officers who shoot uh, unarmed uh, civilians for a minimum of 15 years. He's acquired 2.7 million signatures uh, in support of this legislation. Um, he's been uh, working on it for a couple of years now, and uh, I'm very fortunate to have him on the show to talk a little bit about um, what he's doing and why he's doing it. So, Travis Washington, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, man. <laughs> I'm just happy you let me on. <laughs> Dude, I, hey, you know, for one, I mean, I love what you're doing, but also like, yeah, any excuse to see uh, um, old friends from from high school, you know, like I've, I've been bringing more HF people on the show since doing the whole Zoom thing. And uh, it's been great. Uh, it's yeah. great to check in with people. And, you know, we that community definitely bred some wonderful people. That's for sure. Yes. And I see a lot of people successful from Plossmore a lot like doctors lawyers and that's what uh when people when i'm a teacher they're like where am i from i'm like a place where they breed us to go to harvard yale princeton i got my masters like it hf is no joke man it's no joke for real yeah people people from outside like don't quite understand Just, yeah we were so fortunate we had such immense privilege with with that with that technology and those opportunities yeah, no, I tell people all the time, because uh, I do have dyslexia and ADHD, if I did not go to HF or have the parents with the financial institution they had, I would be homeless, because HF had this whole thing called resource, where they gave me an extra hour to do my schoolwork, and um, HF, I remember I wanted to pursue the basketball dream, but, you know, let that go because of mental problems with the coaches to pursue track. I used to want to transfer, transfer, but HF has prepared me a whole lot. It really like I remember going in like like HF was so hard that college was easy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, dude. Yeah, I like I, I made the mistake of like taking some honors classes in HF that I should not have been in, but yeah, it made things like math and English like a breeze in college. And when I tell people that I will watch, like I had a one point nine GPA my senior year of high school, but I got a four point in grad school. Wow. That's how hard HF was. Yeah. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. Man. Yeah. My grades weren't great either. I, I, uh, yeah. I coasted by, but you know, it got me to a desirable place I'm in today. You know? yeah. So uh, for one, Travis, uh, how are you? How's your day going today? Uh, it's fantastic. It's going good. Just trying to survive the pandemic. Um, I had a fellowship to Israel to study Arabic and uh, cause I'm obsessed with foreign policy, but that got canceled because of COVID it is not looking good. It, it's, I feel like it's going to be another lockdown year. So, you know, I'm like, I'm just going to enjoy being a sixth grade teacher and move forward with that. Yeah. And you're, you're uh, teaching math, correct? Yes. Sixth grade math teacher. For sure. Um, so uh, are you, I don't know how it is in Kansas, uh, but uh, are you still doing everything entirely virtually right now? No, no, we're still we're in the class. This is Kansas. We're in the classroom. <laughs> the Chicago Teacher Union got different from us, but yeah, we're, we're already, we're in the classroom. 
for sure. Yeah, I think Milwaukee um, is weird. They uh, they like just went back into in-person courses the last couple weeks. Mm-hmm. What are you thinking? Like, why don't you just keep the whole semester virtual? You know, like you're kind of disrupting the 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 routine of the students. Like, make like changing it up last minute, but. Um, how how has generally Kansas been uh, from your perspective of like just how they've handled the pandemic? Uh, okay, it's okay. One thing was so Kansas is my first time leaving the state. I was in Illinois for all twenty six years, and let me be real with you, it's a refresher to leave the state. I'm that type of person that didn't want to you know leave. I wanted to be close to everybody, but like I said, time has, means you have to move forward. And it was a great decision because guess what? I'm a huge barbecue rib guy. I'm one hour away from Kansas City. I'm in Topeka. Got to eat at new restaurants. Turns out there are like, because of my stream food allergies, there's actually more options out here in Topeka than when I was at SIUC in Carbondale. And I'm like, and I was able to lose weight and everything. So it, Topeka has just been a blessing for me. It really has been. That's awesome, dude. Yeah. That is super cool. I. I don't know anything about Topeka other than it's the capital. <laughs> or uh, was it the Wizard of Oz? That's the crazy thing. Oh, Wizard yeah. of Oz. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. We're not in Kansas anymore. anymore. <laughs> Dude, yeah. I, the closest I've been, I, uh, my partner at the time, uh, last year, we went to St. Louis for a weekend. Yeah. And, uh, there's some good eating down there. It's yes. Like, it's got a southern, like, Cajun feel to it, but it's yes. still Midwest. Mm-hmm. I like it, yeah. And that's the one thing about the best part about the Hands Up Act. It has helped me travel a lot. I got to go to Wisconsin. I mean, I got to go, yeah, Wisconsin. Like, I got to see Milwaukee, Madison. New Orleans was amazing. Uh, I got to give a speech in the College Democrats of America when they, like, when I was at 400,000 signatures with my petition, the College Democrats of America, America called me down. And I'm like, okay, let's do this. Then I got to uh, go to Memphis, where uh, the hotel where Dr. King died. They told me to drop off my Hands Up Act newspaper. And I was like, well, they were my first supporters. So I'm like, I got to go to a lot of places because of this petition. And it, it feels good to see other people and see that they're very supportive. That's just astounding how this conversation is echoing and uh, resonating from so many corners across the country. Yeah. They all like, and you know, I know you've spoken to uh, the families of Michael Brown and Tamir Rice. Shit needs to change, um, you know. So we're gonna talk all about that. Um, mm-hmm. I know you did, you know, you did a TED talk and everything. We're we're gonna talk all about that in a bit. But first, um, so Travis, uh, so for one, you know, so obviously we grew up together. Um, I remember you were, uh, weren't you Kevin Anderson's neighbor? Yes, I was. See, I knew you were. <laughs> and speaking of two, Kevin and Doug are geniuses. That's why I'm like, I was surrounded like that whole neighborhood. All of them went to college. So I had no choice but to succeed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember like, just like walking through the Heather Hill neighborhood, everyone is playing basketball. Everyone is shooting hoops. And mm-hmm. uh, like, um, those were so some of the earliest memories were uh, playing in that neighborhood at Highland Park, you know, having those Heather Hill picnics and shit like that. Like my parents actually uh, moved uh, out of Fossmer this past year. Uh, no. Wow. Okay. They live in Michigan now. Um, but yeah. Like that is such a blast from the past, you know? Yes. Yeah. Um, so 
what did you want to be when you grew up when you were a kid oh wow so uh first um my grand my grandma who has a master's degree um like i said i wasn't the smartest kid when it just came to textbooks so she when i was in fourth grade she had me work on first grade books when i was in fifth grade second grade books because you know i was a slower reader than everybody else and I thought I wanted to be an NBA player, but my grandma's like, no, you're going to be a teacher and you're going to get your master's degree. She told me that every single day I come home after school, right? Uh, I had low confidence. I thought I wanted to be a police officer at first because I was like, I had a 1.9 in a, you know, a career day at HF. They're like, hey, what's your GPA? I was like, 1.9. It's like, all you need is an associate's degree. You can become a cop. Like that cop made me feel really good about myself. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to be a cop. Um... Then I remember my grandma's like, are you sure I want to be a cop? But this is before I had the consciousness idea. Cause you know, I grew up kind of protected uh, in, in Flossmoor. And you know, I didn't think all white people were racist or racism exists. Cause like I had people like Kevin next door and you next door and you guys were nice. I'm like, that's just their problem. Yeah. Boy was I had a colonized mind, man. Right, <laughs> like, right, right, right. I was very post-racial. I was like, cause you know, I was raised next to you guys. Yeah, but yeah. then I went to college and it started changing a little bit because one semester I had three A's and a D and my D was in criminal justice. And I'm like, ah. and then when I was wearing that cop uniform, I felt very dead inside. I didn't like it at all. Then I thought I want to be an ROTC person, right? I had a perfect record, push-ups, sit-ups. And then one day, one summer I got injured and I saw Michael, uh, Michael Moore's movie, Fahrenheit 9-11, and I'm like, whoa, we invaded Iraq and there was no weapons of mass destruction. And that seeing those their neighborhoods like in Baghdad look like Flossmore turn into dust. Yeah. I didn't want to do it anymore. And then when I found out a million Iraqis died, I was like, I don't want to do the military anymore. Like my attendance went from 30 for 30, perfect running score to like, I just I couldn't do it anymore. And that's when I changed my career to communications. And one thing about politics is always politics has always been with me since sophomore year. I was trying to find something I was good at. And that's all we'll read is Huffington Post articles all day. Think progress, Mother Jones. And that's how I ended up getting an internship in the House of Representatives and got to work on $15 minimum wage, pharmaceutical company abuse, bills like that. Didn't get the uh, fellowship I want, but that turned out to be a blessing in disguise because I got to go to grad school. And that's why I met my fiance and created more memories. That's why I say, I suggest everybody go to grad school. It's like you're a college student a little bit longer. You uh, educate yourself more. It, it, it was it was just a blessing. It really was. For sure. That's all. And did you, uh, where'd you do grad schools? Did you say? Uh, SIUC, yep, yep, yep. I was in Illinois all 26 years. I got it in uh, education administration with college teaching certificate. I worked at the university for a year. Then um, the pandemic happened. And I applied to a job in Topeka, Kansas. Their standards are different from Illinois. And that's how I became a sixth grade math teacher. And I love it being around sixth graders. I love it. Oh, yeah. 12-year-olds, man. They're, they are a rambunctious type. Yes, um, yes. Remember that? We remember, like, looking back, it's like, like, that time was just all, like, video games and bikes. You know, <laughs> like, that's all we cared about back then. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, this is the curse of having consciousness is that you always want to learn more. I think that just separates me 
when, how I knew I was different from everybody else at HF was one time on the radio, I heard um, uh, Tom during the morning show was talking about the unemployment rate. And I was like, the un- in class, in the, at the cafeteria, everybody was talking about sports, yeah. girls. And I was like, guys, you know, the unemployment rate was 8.2%. And everybody at the cafeteria stared at me. And they're like, why? Why is that important? And in my mind, I'm like, do you guys not understand that unemployment affects all of us? And that's when I started to notice I was a little bit different from everybody else. Like I was aware like of homelessness. I was aware of like my dad always tell me like you and my dad, my mom always says, you do not know what anybody goes through. Yeah. And that, and that, that changed in that, that it isolated me a little bit. Like, you know, I hang out with people, but it, it, it wasn't constantly after school. Cause it's like, what's the next thing I need to read? What's the next thing I need to learn? Yeah. Oh yeah, dude. That is something I'm continuously unpacking and uh, mm. learning sort of like how, yeah, when we grew up in home at Flossmar, like there was, there was a lot of racial diversity, and yeah. stuff, but there was not like a lot of class diversity in terms of like, like we're generally, you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty well-off community. It is. It it's, pretty, is. it's pretty affluent. Um, you know, it's very suburban and, um when I moved to Milwaukee like I um initially like I started learning uh I started making friends that you know grew up in Milwaukee and grew up uh in MPS which is um you know which you know under the administration of Republican Governor Scott Walker uh the the, guy (laughs) fucking guy uh that the the public school budget just got slashed like crazy milwaukee is one of the most segregated cities in the country um it's plagued with a lot of socioeconomic issues Mm -hmm. one of the most dangerous cities in the country as well in terms of crime and why is that because how of how segregated it is and how underfunded we talk a lot about the the uh, school to prison pipeline, and that that is a very real conscious thing to be aware of here in Milwaukee. Just like how, because like there are not arts programs and athletics programs that are adequately funded for mm-hmm. kids that are growing up in neighborhoods where there's a lot of drugs and crime and stuff like that. It becomes a fight for survival, and you know it's like it, and that's why poverty is directly related to racism you know institutionalized racism and and i know we see that and like that made me realize just how unique hf was yes we had so much of that diversity racially and and like culturally you know but in terms of like people's financial statuses and stuff like we we were very very fortunate and privileged in ways like a lot of the things we grew up that were so normalized, like having dozens of athletics teams, dozens of so many clubs, our yearbook was so big. We got it the year after the, of that graduating class. Like it, it was very humbling. Yeah. It, and that's what and the thing is, as my brain, like I said, evolved from high school, 
I, I love going to art shows. I love seeing plays now. Now that I don't care about masculinity like that, I'm like, look, I'm a man. I know I am. Why can't I go see plays? Why can't like that? And now when I talk to my students, I appreciate art and music so much more. And people are like, oh, there's no money in art. Well, let's cut the Department of Defense budget so we can have more art teachers. That's just how I look at it. Because art is so important. It gives you an escape. Music is important. Like you said, HF has so many clubs. So many. Like I, sometimes I regret, like, why didn't I spend a year studying French? Like now that I'm older and appreciate language more, and especially what I'm trying to pursue with foreign policy, how much more of an advantage I would have if I would learn a new language? Yeah. I'm yeah. only yeah. And so when I art art and music is so important. And like you said, with Scott Walker, I'll never forget when he cut all that money from education. I think he cut like a hundred million from University of Wisconsin. And that they said University of Wisconsin employs like one out of six people in the yeah. state. And I'm like, what are you doing to that? What's the purpose of that? Those yeah. are jobs, those are your revenue. And what, what people forget, like when you see these low unemployment numbers, and I said this in my last video, if you cut unemployment insurance, you no longer count it. That's what they do. Reagan started that in the 80s where he cut like $20 billion from unemployment insurance and his unemployment rate went from 12% to 8%. He didn't create any jobs. He just, you no longer counted. Right. Look what he did to the defense budget. And, and look how that, that affected the national debt. You know? A lot of people don't realize Reagan spent $3 trillion on the defense budget. $3 trillion. Yeah. And I'm like, that's an important part of history. Right. It's not out there. No wonder, like, you talk about war on drugs, like, if you took $100 billion of that and invested it in those communities, I bet you the war on drugs wouldn't be that devastating. But I begin to realize certain people do mess up things on purpose. And we have to accept that. We can't, we have to stop saying, oh, they don't know any better. They did it, and they did it with intent. Yes, that is correct. Yeah, exactly. Like, they make educated decisions, and that is the terrifying part. Yes. Yeah. And people have to start, like connecting with the hands up act when people were like oh they didn't know no we they didn't know you wouldn't know what you do in that situation first of all we've seen people with machine guns walking to kentucky capital michigan capital not a single shot fire or january 6th right great example but michael brown tamir rice alton sterling terrence crutcher and daniel shaver's video is one disturbing in arizona hotel room crying begging and you hired that officer again, not only that, you give him a $31,000 pension. Yeah. It's done, the police force is supposed to protect and serve. Why do you feel like, why do you want to protect those who intimidate and cause harm? Right. What's the goal? Exactly. It protects and serves the state and the laws, no matter how much they disproportionately target um, people of color and poor people, like, they are there to enforce those laws. They are, like, they are not a, they are not inherently a civil protection force. Mm -hmm. And so, all this said, Travis. So you you said that um in the in the TED talk that uh, so at the time you recorded the talk, which was January twenty fifth of last year, um, you had had this idea for about two years prior. Uh, yes. So I'd love to hear kind of. What was your inception into wanting to pursue, you know, this uh, legislative action? Man, you're a good reporter. <laughs> like you actually, you, you do it what Larry King does. What's the why? So yeah. at first, 
this is why Africana studies was so important in raising the consciousness because we grew up in a society where we need white male approval for everything. If it's not approved by whites, then it's useless. So that's why Africana studies has did a 360 on my mind to like, no, I, it shouldn't have to have white approval if it's right, it's right. Because if it's right, white people would approve of it, black people would approve of it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I don't have to be Jewish to call out the Holocaust. So uh, when I had it for two years, I was like, I remember, I was like, these officers are just getting away with murder. And I was like, you know what, let me wait till I'm a senator or a congressman to do this. And I wrote it down in my little blue notebook. I carried this notebook with all types of notes and information on it uh, for the past year. It filled up. Now my mind kind of changed a little bit more. And I remember going to Father Brown in his office. I'm like, I'm going to wait till I'm a senator or a congressman to do this. He's like, why do you have to wait? Why can't you do it now? And Terrence Crutcher's murderer was rehired by the police force. And I remember crying and Father Brown's like, go to the African Studies Library. It's the book with all these black authors from Ghana, South Africa, Nigeria, uh, even black authors in America. And I started reading the books and it talks about uh, feeling validated to do the right thing. Why, uh, why wait? when we're crying now and i was like whoa and i remember uh being on that train station had uh father brown look over it before i posted a petition because you know my grammar is not the best i could talk it but writing it down i still confuse my there and there so <laughs> probably say they are in a sentence and i felt this spiritual presence uh of the people unarmed guiding me the people who have been enslaved guiding me and her like dr king said heard the voice of jesus still to fight on and that's when i was like you know what let me post it i got like 20 signatures within like two days that was like a lot to me at the time but it, it was a long long process even when my article dropped i was looking now that i'm looking at my old cell phone i was still like seven thousand signatures after like eight months yeah it was a long process. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But um, what was your primary means of uh, engaging with the community at the time, like initially? Uh, emailing. I emailed everybody. You name it, I emailed them. You name a Facebook group, I messaged them. And they all said, no, it's impossible. It's not going to be done. Stuff like that. But I'm, I'm too determined where I was like, I have a, you know what, type of attitude. Like, you can't tell me anything. Even when I'm wrong, that's why I got to work on when I'm wrong. <laughs> but you, one thing I learned, you need certain personalities to get certain jobs done. Yeah. And um, when I engaged with the community, a lot of people just shook their heads. They really did. Because one, it's fear. Two, it's jealousy. And three, they feel like it's impossible. Right. It, it, like I tell you, like I read a lot, a lot of like a lot of slave narratives like Ellen Willing Craft, Nat Turner, Frederick Douglass. Equiano, like a lot, uh, Sojourner Truth. I read their slave narratives and they talk about, and if you read them, the same mindset then is happening now. I don't feel like it's possible to be liberated. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like that is something um, uh, I've like really grown conscious of as well. Like um, I'm a political, I'm a social organizer in Milwaukee as I organize with the Party for Socialism and Liberation. And we talk a lot about abolition and we talk about what does abolition mean? It's not just a approach of dismantling. It's also the mindset of 
dismantling the colonized mind and and how you think about like normative political structure and social structures like the reason people think it's impossible is because we have just been so indoctrinated by the capitalist system to believe that this is the way it just has to be and we have to accept it you know we we just have to uh tread uh day by day as the working class hoping that you know we're not in the wrong place at the wrong time you know yeah so, and what I wanted to tell you, and then the biggest thing of why white Americans think uh, just because it happens around black people won't happen to you. And I'm like, yes, it will. Because I read Ida B. Wells' is a story called Southern Horrors, where she said a nine-year-old girl was uh, raped by a, a nine-year-old black girl was raped by a white man. That white guy served t- uh, six months in prison and it was hired by the Nashville Police Department. Mm-hmm. Fast forward, this happened in 1902. Fast forward 100 years a white girl was thrown in the back of a van and raped by two police officers, white police officers, white people raping a white woman, and those officers were off. So if you don't hold accountability when it happens to brown and black people, it will happen to you. Yeah. And right. that's all I'm like, what go- I love what Bob Marley says, what goes around comes around. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's why I'm like, it, that it, it can happen to anybody, anywhere. And that's why I, that's why the hands up act is so important because I'll tell you what, it's at 2.7 million signatures, but as soon as more people find out about it, it's going to be out of control. Cause now it's going to be like, Hey, Senator, why didn't you approach this sooner? Yep. And when people like, Oh, your petition don't work. There was this one girl who had 800,000 signatures on the petition in 2017 called the animal cruelty act. And the Senate passed it within that same year, 800,000 signatures, and they passed the law. I'm at 2.7 million, and I email all these U.S. senators and governors two times now. Why do you feel more comfortable to talk about passing laws about animals and people? That's a sickness. That right there, that is chilling, the way you just uh, phrased that. Considering the progress we have made in uh, racial justice and uh, uh, police accountability, addressing issues of police brutality. Considering how much progress and how the conversations have changed, like part of me wonders, like, don't these uh, politicians and these legislators, like, I feel like you know, progress is so inevitable at this point. Like, yeah, yeah. they're going to sign it eventually. For so them, I really feel like they need to do something. Yeah, and this is one thing, change is very slow, but change happens eventually. Because look, we grew up in the same neighborhood. We were, so this is why I told somebody uh, whenever they feel like it's impossible for the hands up act. I'm like, I remember seeing on the calendar every single year at Thanksgiving, it's called Christopher Columbus Day. Christopher Thanksgiving, Christopher Columbus, they do that all the time. First grade, second grade, third grade, we looked at the same calendar. Now they're calling it Happy Indigenous Day. That's change. And I think it's either Sweden or Switzerland where they do this thing called Black Pete where they paint their face black. They no longer do that now. It's starting to get banned. And they've been doing that for like 100 years. Maybe, I don't know, two, uh, maybe 100 years. I don't know the exact date. But they've done it for a long, longer than both of our parents are even thought of. So like change does happen. I like what Russell Means is an American Indian activist said, he said this in the 1970s, we have to kill the legacy of Christopher Columbus and guess what, it's being destroyed. So the hands up, like you said, the more bodies that stack up, 
the worse the politicians look. Yep, that is absolutely correct because they could have listened when this was initially presented to them. What is really very largely, uh, you know, accelerated the rate in which change has happened has a lot to do also with the power of the internet and social media and how yeah. and virtual organizing, which yeah. you clearly have done a lot of since you've emailed, uh, you know, probably thousands and thousands of people at this point. I bet you have. I mean, I guess I just don't know what these politicians are waiting for half the time, you know, like we saw it, like it's, I, and I think it probably has a lot to do with capitalism. Yeah. You know? a lot, a, and, and to me, it's like, I love the hands up act. Like, this is why I said in my interview, like I wanted to be law so bad, but I'm like, we climate change. Like, yeah. They just said the earth tilt a little bit or uh, this coronavirus, for example. I'm like, dude, uh, I actually, I'll stick to the climate change to make my point. I'm like, the, the polar caps are going. Like, at this point, anybody, the only people that I think that are just in denial are just benefiting from it. Yeah. Like, they, like, I told people, I love to destroy police brutality, but I can't do that if we're all on boats. So like, <laughs> like, there's no... Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually that's a really good point. Like I, I can't you know, yeah. even a lot of even a lot of Democrats are are culpable in in this mm -hmm. inaction because it's you know Democrats are run by profits too uh, yeah. by corporate donors and and that and that shit. So and you know you bring up climate change and uh, profits directly play uh, a, a huge role in why that is being so like why action for that has had to be so grassroots rather than like top yeah. down. Why did you choose to call it the hands up act? You want to explain that part of it? <laughs> um, to be completely honest, I don't, I can't remember. Like I just, because I remember they said hands up, don't shoot. And I had the idea for two years, but hands up, act, it just, it sticks. It sticks. It really does stick. Wow, I can't um I can't remember, but like I know people wanted me to change the name. Like some dude came out, told me, like, why don't you change it to police accountability law or make it less uh controversial? I'm like, why do you feel uncomfortable with what I say? Unless you're benefiting from it. Yeah. Like why? Like is it the thing is it's not it's not scary, like saying global warming is not scary, it's just it's it's straight up. And um, uh, a lot of people, let me even tell you this, a lot of people will tell me you're going to make the police officer's job uh, more dangerous. I was like, you mean tell me the only way a police officer can do his job is if he has the ability to shoot somebody unarmed without punishment? So you tell me the only way he can do his job is if he installs fear? Yeah, right. That's, That's what you're telling Essentially, how, how do you feel safe now knowing that the police have not only that power but the qualified immunity that allows them to get away with that having that power mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and this is the thing this is a tricky thing because a lot of people hit, you're the perfect person to talk to because i can see where your mind is we think alike on a lot of things but a lot of people hit me with the qualified immunity is going to stop you i was like this is why i tell this is why i tell people law is like liquid it's very flexible and it go it shapes in different forms because qualified immunity was not created till 1982. Police officers been shooting people on arm before that. 
Like yeah. what inspired the Selma March was when Jimmy Lee Jackson, if you saw the movie Selma, was shot unarmed. That cop was in charge. He shot that dude unarmed in 1965. He was in charge till 2007. Uh, Malcolm X held up a newspaper in 1962, 63, 500 armed Negroes shot unarmed. Those cops were in charge. Now it's 1982, they put in qualified immunity. Walter Scott, dude in North Carolina or South Carolina was shot in his back, the cop was charged. Laquan, Laquan McDonald's murder was charged and qualified immunity exists. So why is it, It's that's what I'm saying, the law is very flexible. The hands up back is gonna work perfectly because it's very straightforward. For those that you know, uh, just want need more um, background information. So do you wanna describe exactly like, so exactly what the hands up act is like what it will constitute and um, how you want, how, how you would ultimately foresee it being implemented. Uh, how I see it uh, being implemented is well, pretty much a police officer shoots a mile in arm is mandatory 15 years. And I'm gonna let the congressional aides put all the details in it. Cause like when Dr. King was pushing for the civil rights bill, the senators, congressional aides wrote the details. So I'm gonna let them do the details. Uh, how I see it being implemented is me doing a committee hearing. Like this Tuesday, I'm speaking before Wichita uh, City Council in a public agenda hearing. This is this has been a long time coming. This is why it's exciting. Like this is my first time doing it. Um, me going to the House of Representatives to do a committee hearing on it. My biggest goal is to speak in front of the United Nations Human Rights Council because I want them to see the human rights violations with the police department. So they, so people across the world can know like, hey, America, that's wrong. How can we be, say we're a defender of democracy and human rights when we let police officers shoot people unarmed? And that is international pressure and they have to see what they're, what they are doing. Yes. And, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. This is, this is just so eye-opening. This is like the, the, the ripple impact you can have from starting from just a small scale it just amplifies just how how the internet works has allowed us to make such amplified impact in our communities and that's yes. just so and that's really that's really amazing travis so where like how did how did around what time was it really starting to pick up steam what were what was sort of like a tipping point for you the tip when it reached when it grew like 100 200,000 i think it just happened out of nowhere too, because it even caught me off guard. I think this is when I was just first talking to my fiance, and she's like, "Why are you staring at your phone all day?" I'm like, "It's actually growing." What do you mean? <laughs> like, like it had like uh, it was right around Pamela Turner when she was shot by she was a pregnant woman shot by the police, and it just grew exponentially, like just a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, and it slowed down around four hundred thousand. And I remember emailing uh, governors across the state. Six of them responded and they're like, so we see it, we're interested. Okay, why didn't you pursue? You right. know I exist. Is your winning your re-election more important than doing the right thing? Right. That's the question politicians have to ask themselves. Because Governor Wallace, the one who says segregation now, tomorrow, forever, a lot of people don't know after he was paralyzed and came back, he was begging the black community for forgiveness at the end of his life. And that's what I want these politicians to realize. Don't come and wait to the very end to say, I'm sorry. There was a Republican Senator from Utah on his deathbed selling 
Muslims, I am so sorry for how we treated you. You are loved. And a Republican senator for like 50 years told his son to tell the Muslim community that. I'm like, you don't wait till your deathbed to say this. I, I forgive you. I love it. But like, that's all these, you don't wait till the end to say, I'm sorry. Right. It doesn't bring back the, the victims of, of hate crimes and no. who have lost their lives for it. It doesn't bring them back. And we no, don't need any more examples. Exactly. Examples. Yes. And the thing is, it's, it's going to cost more. Like uh, Minnesota, uh, you know, Minneapolis, I hate saying it. I really do. I'm so happy George Floyd's family got the money, right? I was like, $27 million is a lot of money. That's a school shutting down. That's a food program gone, all because of a murderer. Yeah. And it, because I'm a middle school teacher, I know that's my job going. Because we're, and this is the pandemic, so where else are they going to get the money? Right, right. They're not going to take it out of the militarization of the police. Nope. To give these, to give these cops these ridiculously uh, ballistic, uh, you know, armored trucks and ridiculous crowd control weapons. Like it's no, I mean, and those are things to think about. Those, those are things that like I, I wasn't even thinking about. Like, like Myanmar, yeah. Yeah, where is yeah, where is that money? Like, if that money is going to be granted um, to a family who, uh, the family of somebody who uh, lost their life as a result of police brutality, like that money is coming away from the community. Like that, I didn't even think about it that way, and that that is very heartbreaking. Yeah, because uh, I saw the story in uh, Kent. See, now that I'm out here, I got to watch Kansas City News. I can't watch WGN anymore, right? right, right. So I watch Kansas City uh, PBS. And so the Kansas City Police Department got an extra $10 million, right? And they only hired 10 police officers. Now the Kansas City mayor wanted to uh, cut $10 million from the police force, right? And they said 272 cops can lose their jobs. I'm like, that's such a fear tactic. We give you 10 million, you only hire 10 cops. Now we're taking that 10 million away give to homeless shelters and other programs. It's like uh, 272 cops will lose their jobs. That's what I'm like, come on now. Yeah, well, yeah, that, that happened in Milwaukee um, <laughs> where, you know, we, after a whole summer of marching for to demanding that we defund the police and including by some of these older persons that, you know, were, marching with us, like with Black Lives Matter uh, masks and stuff like that, uh, you know, are coming out of out of this room deciding, oh, we're going to accept the grant that's going to hire, you know, 30 more police officers in Milwaukee. We have been marching all year demanding that Common Council not accept any more money or grants to, to fund, to, to more towards MPD. Like we are already a ridiculously over-policed city and mm -hmm. they ended up accepting it. That right there, like that's enough to make people feel like, man, this is impossible. Like what, what is it going to take? Do we have to, you know, do we have to storm a building to get our point across at this point? And obviously that many periods of time in history, that was the case. That did happen. The French Revolution. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but to me, I will always believe nonviolence is the best way of doing it because then you'll be no better than them. But to go back to like with that crazy amount of spending 
And the thing is that like, well, gun murders are still going higher and higher, even though we have all these cops. We'll focus on gun laws. Right. You focus on several things at once, you know. Yeah, exactly. And that's like the guns, you're going to hear so many different opinions about it. But I'm like, I never heard of a knife go through a window to hit a girl, a three-year-old child. Right. And we had 20,000 homicides last year. 20,000 gun murders. Yeah. And only three news sources reported that. And I'm like, in uh in in the in the u.s yeah twenty thousand gun murders during the pandemic Jeez. yeah democracy now reported it philadelphia inquiry and one of the like when i heard that on democracy now i had to rewind that three times i'm like you know how you hear something like did i hear that right yeah and i'm yeah. like well democracy now wouldn't lie about it because right. that's crazy when a good source says something and it's hard to believe the yeah. population of Carbondale is 20,000. That's that whole town going. Dude, yeah. You, you look retrospectively at how propagandized our understanding of the police and criminality is, not taking into account the mass incarceration and profitability of prisons that keeps so many nonviolent criminals that are in, in jail for, for, for weed, you know, for, for, dr- for nonviolent drug offenses. And while there's more and more states in the union where weed is is recreationally available everywhere that 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 i cannot fathom what so at what point were you starting to like actually travel um on behalf of the hands up act how how would your activism snowball uh wow the moment where i felt like i received the most validation and where I was like, yeah, nobody's gonna turn me around is when I met uh, the mother of Michael Brown and the mother of Tamir Rice and they invited me out to this event. And I was like, yeah, that's when my confidence was like, you know what, if they believe in me, uh, especially Michael Brown's mother believe in me, there's no there's no turning back. There's no, like, I, nobody can tell me nothing. Those people who said it's impossible, uh it's not going to be done you don't matter because it's like i uh what do they say i saw this one movie they're like the uh, egypt belongs to the british algeria belongs to the french and uh libya belongs to the italians but guess what they gained their independence anyways and that's how i felt like oh it's impossible but like oh you will see it becomes possible and then when anton rose's mother is like said thank you for not giving up and then most recently I met Jacob Blake's father and uh, Brianna Taylor's mother even signed my petition. That's why I'm like, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. And the snowball was like, when I went to St. Louis, that's where I met Michael Brown's mother. Then when I went to New Orleans to go speak at College Democrats of America. And then when I gave that, uh, my speech uh, in Carbondale, Illinois, when they invited me out and they wanted me to give a speech, that's when I gained, like, uh, I kid you not, gained two million signatures within two weeks. Wow. Yeah. And that and that's when I gave the speech of my lifetime. And the news, the local news, this conservative somewhat news, acknowledged the Hands Up Act on TV. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's Carbondale, so of course it's not as big of a coverage. But one thing I've learned is that I know when people are trying to cause change, it's media does its best to slow it down. Yeah. Yeah. They, or they, they reframe it. 
we've yes. experienced that a lot in Milwaukee too. Um, yeah. Right. Because they're, they, they try to present a narrative of like recognizing like both sides, whatever that means. But, and, mm-hmm. and as such, you know, disrupting our, our messaging. Um, but that's still, you know, that's incredible. I mean, that's the power of grassroots organizing, you know, yeah. the power ultimately is always in the people's hands. Um, how, so how did the, the Ted talk all happen? Uh, so one of my friends, uh, Mary, so look, before I go anywhere, make a speech, I'll go through three people. I go through Mary, who's my left wing friend, Simbi, who uh, gives me the black African woman's perspective. Right. And then I go through Hannah. She's an independent, but she'll just tell me straight up. I always go through uh, all three of them before I like give a speech or anything. But Mary was the one who uh, told me you should apply for it. And I was I didn't know much of it. So I was like, OK, let me just apply for it. I didn't realize how big of a deal TEDx was, because like I said, if it's not Al Jazeera, TRT, World, DW News, or France 24, I really don't care. Like, if it's not about foreign policy, I don't care. Like, that's how much I love foreign policy. I applied for it, and I made it out of like 300 people. And uh, the day before I presented it, they put me on the French pages of the newspaper. And I was like, whoa, okay. And um, I... At first, during the trials, I went first, and then a the day of, I went last. And I remember there was like 200 people in one room, and I just focused on three people. Uh, two of my friends and my fiance, I was like, okay, I'm gonna pretend like nobody else is in this room. <laughs> and then the thing is, uh, the crazy thing is, right before I got on stage, they said my clicker wasn't working. Right, yeah, I was like, <laughs> I don't know if you're religious or not, but I was like, not today, Satan. I would have a, dude, I would have a heart attack, man. Yes, I was like, what? I, they're like, can you go without, um, can you go without your clicker? You know what I did? I did, my, me and my brother had an Xbox, right? Xbox 360, you know how it runs out of power, and then we, me and my brother would switch out the remotes with the batteries, right? So you know what I did? I took both the batteries out, I switched it, and I put it back in. I was like, let's do this. And they're like, are you sure how you know it's going to work? I was like, it's going to work. Yeah. No, I, it was all faith that day. I can't, That's a background story of that. They told me, right, kid you not, right before I go through that black curtain, yeah, this remote's not working. But then, you know, uh, power of the energy. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. I was like, don't tell me that right before. I, and like, where's the extra batteries? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? It was one of the things, but you know what? It's one of those things where it showed me how far I've come. I wasn't going to let anything turn me around. Like, that, that to this day, I'm shaking my it, It's one of the stories, like when my dad gets upset or sees something, he just shakes his head and walk away. When they did that, I did the same reaction my dad did. I was like, I, I kid you, switched it. And yeah, that's that's a little background. Isn't that insane? Right before yeah. you get on stage, dude. Yeah, that would be soul crushing. But but uh, hell yeah, well that's awesome. Um, that is like yeah, thank God, dude. Thank God. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, so you did that um, January twenty fifth, twenty twenty. Um, and you also you had, you had the article that was written about you you as well that really kind of um not only uh, uh kind of like was descriptive of of the hands up act in general but it also gave a personal testimony yes uh, exactly that's why that's my favorite article because it, it talks about me as a person because it, it's like wh- how this hands up act became to be i talked about how uh my fiance and that my first 
uh, how my first date was Detective Pikachu because I love movies. I got a DVD collection. Um, and then I talked about the four shows that defined me and helped me not give up, like uh, the Teen Titans, the uh, Yu-Gi-Oh, the Naruto, uh, and the Star Wars, like where it shows the character not giving up inside. And I'm like, okay, if they can defeat these odds and I can defeat the odds. And that, that's why I love that article. And it shows me as a person, like why, where I'm going, how am I going to get there and why I'm never going to turn around. And so do you want to, um, uh, for, so I'm, I am going to tag um, both the TED Talk and the, the article in the description of the episode, but do you want, for those uh, who don't, uh, who haven't seen it, um, do you want to share kind of what that story was? Uh, oh, in, TED Talk? Yeah. Um, for example, my own experience with seeing and hearing police brutality, like in Dalton, Alabama, how these cops planted drugs on 1,000 black men, or how my cousin had his testicles tased by a Chicago police officer. And now that I'm looking back on it, right, that's why my grandma didn't want me to be a Chicago police officer. That's why she wanted me to be a teacher. And that's, it didn't connect then, but it's connecting now. Like, this is real. This, that's a person. And once you accept that's a person, you have to accept responsibility. Because if you don't, you're no better than the villain that you see on TV, throwing people's lives away. So at the time of the TED talk, um, so from that point on, you know, like, so that would be four months before the murder of George Floyd. And it would be, yeah. it was a month and a half before the murder of Breonna Taylor. Yeah. So upon these, these horrible um, injustices and instances of police violence, like, like, I imagine it really just, it affirmed everything for you that you were talking about and that you had, been pursuing this whole time the sad thing i don't want to be braggadocious about this at all but i see things happen before it happens a lot of times it, it's frustrating because it's like i told you i warned you and then you do it anyways and that's why it, that's the most frustrating part is like i tell you this and it happens why aren't you like politicians you see this why aren't you pursuing me you know i exist one state rep even told me he knows me from Daily Egyptian, why didn't you do anything? Mm -hmm. yeah. And the night that Breonna Taylor, I found out how she was murdered, I didn't even sleep that night because I thought a police officer was gonna go through my door. That's- It's traumatic. Like, yeah, I was like, I remember that. I was sitting at my door the whole night and I'm like, not only do I have to deal with a robber, I gotta deal with a police officer. And so, it, 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 what I'm doing is liberating. It really is. Like, for, that's why I'm not fearful because I know I'm doing something about it. Like, I remember Greta Thunberg when I was watching her interview. Love that. She's a wonderful human being. Then she said she started to get depressed about it until she started doing something about climate change. And that's how I feel. Like, I don't want to say ever I was depressed about it, but it's so liberating knowing that I'm doing something. And because I'm doing something that will definitely work once it hits mainstream, once it gets more signatures, because 2.7 million, that's a lot. But even with that, the one interview I did with Evanston Live, she's like, I never even heard of it, and we're in the same state. Yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, I, I remember that night. I, I couldn't sleep that night. Now, Amai Aubrey, I seen, I posted on my Instagram, but I wasn't surprised. Like, And then when I found out he was a former police officer, my thought was, if he was, he was a cop for more than 10 years, 
how has his mindset influenced the rookies on the job that he trained? Hmm. It's, a, it's a domino effect. If he's racist, attitude, willing to hunt another human being down, what has he done with the badge? Right, yeah. Person. Right, it's like, how has that cycle of abuse continued? Yeah. And like when um when I like when I was in my ROTC uniform and right before I even went to another day, I found out about what happened with Abu Ghraib, right? How we torture uh, prisoners, and I was like, yeah. yeah. What if I didn't have my consciousness and I seen this and I was training that? And now I'm a part of that environment. Mm -hmm. That me torturing those prisoners. So that that's why I can that's how I connected that to this. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's and it is. It is all very interconnected for sure. Um, the police and the military tactics, because um, it's serving the same system. It's serving the same state. And um, so that said, how so? How did you like? So you know everyone needs their moment to grieve and process what is happening. Like, obviously you lost a night of sleep, you know, in, in terror. And I'm sure a lot of people did. How, what was the next thing you did? In terms um, of your I, did, um, I actually called Father Brown. He told me, he tells me this all the time. He's like, he tells me my time is coming. I don't know if you see it. He tells me your time. He's like, it's going to work. And that's why I got those two million. I used to like meditate or pray or go to the Catholic church and pray by myself to do it. And the day that I had to give that speech in front of a crowd of a thousand people in Carbondale, like another funny story, like remote situation. I wrote a whole speech awake a week ahead of that. And as we were protesting, I lost my speech that day. Oh man. So I had to freestyle the whole thing. And I just poured all my emotions in that speech, all of it. And I had one of my best friends, Nick, text me. I had somebody from my job at SIU text me. They said they had chills during that speech. Avi, uh, Ian, people working, but everybody told me they had chills that speech. So that that was my next move was feel Breonna Taylor's presence, George Floyd's presence, uh, uh, my obvious presence, it just put it all on the microphone. Mm -hmm. And then I got to do another speech in Chicago in front of a crowd of 5,000 people. That was a big march because I didn't want to be up front in the march. Uh, I wanted to be in the middle of it so I can take in like, wow, these people are going to hear what I have to say. And once again, I just, they, she, before I got on stage, it's, it's so weird. Before I got on stage, people were telling me the weirdest things. The weirdest things happened right before I talked. She's like, lift up the crowd a little bit. I was like, don't tell me this right before I got on stage. <laughs> That's pressure. <laughs> and I just poured into it. I told it because the Chicago Police Department was right there. I was like, those are the people who tortured my cousin to get him to admit to a crime he didn't commit. Those are the people who tried to plant drugs on my father. Those are the people who my academic advisor at SIU said she saw how Chicago police officers were hanging people out the windows for confessions. And they're like, we're going to drop you. Jeez. Yes, and I did a speech in front of a crowd, all of them, and I told them, like, the day Tamir Rice was shot, they threw his sister in the back of a police car. And I'm like, this is animal behavior. This is sadistic behavior. Yeah. And people are like, oh, it's, it's obvious it's not all cops. Then arrest the ones that are acting out in that behavior. Right. Protecting them.
Right. And, but it's, and I hate when people bring that, that not all, like, cause it's so, it's unproductive. Yeah. Ex thank you. It's unproductive. Like, it's like, it's the same thing as saying like, not all white people or not all men. It evades accountability for like looking inwardly at yourself and looking exactly. how, how, you know, you've like toxic things you might believe or have even done in the past that, that contribute to, you know, problematic structures. Yeah, you know? exactly. Thank you. It's like uh, a lot of people look at me like when I say President Hoover is like my favorite. Uh, he, you know what? He's not my favorite. president. He's my second favorite president. And he's one of my four top four heroes I look up to. People are like, why him? Why him? He implemented this thing called the good neighbor policy where it ends all foreign inventions, intervention. He ended foreign intervention in Haiti and seven South American countries. We know it's not all white people because he's somebody who said he hated intervening in other people's countries. So that so we know it's not all police officers, but how are we gonna call how are we gonna have accountability? Right, right, exactly. Because those good police officers, like if they're not um if they're not able to speak out and also Thanks. recognize that it is a problem, it is an institutionalized in, instilled problem with law enforcement and uh, racial disparities and also just unhinged violence if like then how good really are they if they're not going to be speaking out too yeah and the thing is if you speak out you get fired that is colonization within the police force i call that if i can't hold somebody else accountable with my badge on then i'm part of the problem if i speak out about it and Boy, oh boy, that's tough. You can't even speak out about the situation. Yeah. Now you're trapped. It's like at that point, it's either you you quit, you resign, or you speak out and you're forcefully removed. Uh -huh. And this is the thing. This is why I love my hands up at, because I know I'm protecting officers that want to do the right thing. And this is why I tell people, there are people who will never say it out loud who are cheering for me. And I know. Because they, they hear, like, I remember uh, the day Terrence Crutcher was, uh, I found, I didn't watch the whole YouTube video. The Terrence Crutcher murderer, right? Uh, whenever, this is what they do. Whenever a white officer murders somebody black, they put the black or Latino police chief on TV. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah. You don't think that's degrading. You don't think that they feel bad. And that's how I was like, they won't say it, but I know people like that are definitely cheering for me. Right, that's just, because that's just tokenizing them. Yeah, you don't even see them as a person. Right, you see right. Them as somebody that we can use to say, we're not a racist department. Really, then get rid of that person that's causing harm. Right, it's like saying that, you know, I'm not racist because I have a black friend or I have a brown friend. Here, let's go talk to them. Let's see how they feel, you know, like. It's or an even better example, a lot of people don't know this. Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy had a black wife and adopted a black kid, but he's the presidency, president of the Confederacy and he enslaved a lot of people. Andrew Jackson, when he was slaughtering Native Americans that had black slaves, you know he invited black generals and Native Americans into his house who he considered his friends. Yeah, like make it make sense. So that is exponential growth in about a year and today's May 2nd, so a year and four months, exponential growth. You were at about 420,000 signatures in January of last year. Now you are at 2.7 million.
Um, the conversation has obviously amplified thanks to tragedy after tragedy in the last year, as well as I feel like a lot of radicalization came from the government's mishandling of the pandemic. And that definitely feeds into a lot of recognizing how they've mishandled so many other things. Yeah, um, I'd love to hear more about places you've traveled to speak on this um, mm -hmm. the last year. Um, right now I'm working this, uh, this was it, this Tuesday is probably going to be the, I don't want to say the biggest, but it, it'll be play a significant role because it's not hundred percent confirmed. They're probably going to have a cameraman there where they see me speak in front of city council, whether it's five or seven minutes, because they give me a time limit to speak on it. That's huge. That's documented a part of history. I'm looking forward to that Tuesday. So I got my hair cut and everything. Um, but flying to, uh, I remember uh, I had to fly from Minis from Kansas City to Minnesota. And then when I was in the Mad Wisconsin, Madison in front of the Capitol, because Iomi, who's in charge of the impact demand out there, civil rights group, they've been pushing for hands up act every single time. And the crazy thing is when somebody in the Wisconsin state legislator contacted me about my hands up act, right? Never pursued it, but I gave a speech in front of that Capitol. Whether they knew it or not, they know I was there. They know I was there. Now it's like, what's taking so long? Dude. Good question. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Milwaukee hears you, or at least Milwaukee's about to hear you. Yeah. Because, um, you know, I, I'd be really happy to share this petition. I would love to work with. Milwaukee and the people I'm working with Madison, we can make this uh, hands up act uh, protest together. Yeah, I, we, we. And bring we, out a crowd, call yeah, it hands should, up act March. Yeah, we should really like spearhead that um, here in Wisconsin in the next couple months. Cause you know, the, the so I was telling you about this a little bit um, prior to us recording, but People's Revolution, uh, grassroots organization that has been pushing for um, for the justice of for families of Alvin Cole, uh, Jay Anderson, Antonio Gonzalez, um, all of which black and brown uh, uh, young men who were murdered by the same officer Joseph Mensa, who was given the opportunity. What's that? Same officer. Same officer. He is a cop uh, with the Wauwatosa Police Department. Was allowed to resign. He was allowed to resign. That's not justice. He was allowed to resign. And then he was recently um, recommended for high. He was rehired by the Waukesha Police Department, which is literally a town over from Wauwatosa. And uh, the families of, um, and also, you know, the family of Joa Acevedo, who who um, who was murdered at a party? He was put in a chokehold. He he was murdered by by a cop that was off duty at a party. Um, murder because of a badge. Yeah, he was choked. Well, the officer Michael Mattioli uh, has been on trial um, for a couple weeks now, and and. You know, simultaneously, the People's Revolution are really working hard to try to get um, um, the w Wisconsin legislators to push to ban chokeholds entirely uh, from police officers, because 
you know, right now chokeholds are illegal unless the case of like absolute necessity is is it's worded along the lines of that. But but the problem is is that that has is so easily manipulated and abused um, in the hands of bigger, happier, otherwise violent cops. Um, in this case, a cop that was off duty. Um, and so the People's Revolution have been, they're gonna be, they're going on day, they've been marching since day, since May 29th of uh, last year. And uh, they're going on day 365 of consecutive marching. Um, and they, they haven't stopped and they won't stop um, until we get justice for these families. And they have their demands um, available on their website. The Hands Up Act sounds like something exactly like um, something that would fall exactly in tandem with their demands too. So I, I, do hope, I, I do hope that uh, um, we can we can work together. I'd love to have you up here in Milwaukee, man. No, I will be there. No, and I can definitely contact Impact Demand because if we do that this summer, and once again that same Wisconsin state. Who knows? It was definitely start trickle effect. Yeah, Absolutely. right. Exactly. I I really that's the plan. Um, you know, we we had amazing massive marches last summer and the uprisings. Um, actually, you mentioned Jacob Blake's uh, father. Um, we actually had a rally a couple weeks ago. A group I organized with. They're called Never Again Action. It's a Jewish social justice group, but. Um, uh, we had um, Jacob Blake's uncle actually speak, and we heard um, we heard him speak about like how Jewish and black folks and brown folks, like the immigrant community, like are all fighting the same battle. Yes, right. And uh, that's the whole point of intersectionality. You know, like that's that's the whole idea of intersectionalities. A lot of these fights are the same fight. You know, or there are at least there's symptoms of the same beast. Um, everyone's oppression is unique and is its own fight, but they're all related in some way. And um, you mentioned Tamir, like you've, you've brought up Tamir Rice several times and the cop that murdered Tamir Rice, like had a history of emotional instability. He shouldn't have even been a cop in the first place. It is just way too easy for police officers to have way too much power in a situation. Yep. So hands up act. Um, so obviously I will be tagging the petition. Um, how else can folks support slash get involved in what you're doing? Uh, the biggest thing we're going to do after you're done recording, <laughs> the biggest thing we can do is I'm going to contact impact a man and set something up with you where we can do a hands up act March this summer. And invite as many people out because I know Mr. You said Jacob Blake's uncle. We're going to try to get him out there, do a press release, and get a news reporter out there and call this the Hands Up Act March. That's what we're going to do. Uh, and uh, besides us working together, keep on sharing and signing because 2.7 million is a lot. I I remember when I took my brother for his. Uh, this is when Tom Brady was with the Patriots. Um, for my brother's uh, birthday present, I took him to see uh, the Titans versus the Patriots. And when I went to that stadium, I looked around. I was like, this is 69,000 people. I have 400,000 signatures. 
That's a lot of people. Because 69,000 people in the state, you ever see one of those football stadiums that filled to capacity? You're like, that, that's the 69,000 people? I'm like, there's a 350,000 other people out there supporting me. Now I'm at 2.7 million. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, that's, that's an entire metropolitan area. That's the population of Chicago. That's Rhode Island. That's a whole state, Delaware, supporting me. Dude. Like, bravo, man. Part of me struggles with, like, when I am presented with such chilling statistics or information like that. Like, I don't really know what to say because it is so impactful. And to be able to have this this exchange here and, and put it in perspective is astounding. And... Um, and I'm really glad we were able to reconnect um, over, you know, you know, like talking about, you know, bringing you on to talk about the hands up act and everything, but also to like be able to like check in and really like um, bond with somebody I've known for so long. So yeah. since we were literally tod like toddlers, like yeah. I was going to wait until you start recording because I want to talk to you free time after this. Like, yeah, yeah, we will. We will. We will. Yeah. But, but you know, to to bring it full circle with somebody and still yeah. and like reconnect and fight on something so mass, collaborate on something so massive in scale on societal change, is um, you know, something I'm like extremely grateful for. That I will like stuff like this, conversations like this, I'll remember for the rest of my life. You know, exactly. And not only that, because we're from the same neighborhood. Yeah. Because like we both said, we both grew up at that time, like. We had no worry in the world. I mean, yeah, you know, I had my problems. Like, it, it, our problems were like literally high school drama and like CW. Like, yeah. that's how our high school dramas was. Cause like, you had art club, you got a Spanish club, yeah, all these clubs. So we, like I said, I go into more plays now because it's really a blessing to have that. They just built a new theater stadium out there. I found out for plays, and. To, like you said, us go our separate ways because that's what HF is known for. Like in the state I am, they try to make sure the kids in the state go to Kansas University. Home of Philosopher makes you go everywhere. They don't, they like SIU, yeah. You went to Milwaukee. Uh, they make sure you go everywhere. Like uh, Doug Anderson, he went to the school in Iowa. That's yeah. their job. They made, they make sure we spread out. Oh, yeah. We disperse. Yes. There is a dot diaspora, if yes. you will. Oh yeah, dude. Uh, last question I had for you. This is just curious. Um, so, you, so you you studied communications. Mm -hmm. um, how has the how have those studies, um, I guess, benefited your your work and your ability to to speak with so much charisma? Um, I, I know you mentioned you had some point people you look at in the crowd. That's a big thing I do too. I study. I minored in communication. Mm -hmm. But how have your studies really uh, impacted your ability to make this change? I love that you asked that question. Um, once again, it, it, people think this is just skill comes out of nowhere. This is a lot of time reading, man. Reading a lot of books, expanding your vocabulary. Like one summer, I wanted just to play video games. This is after Father Brown gave me my little slave narrative book. It was like 2,000 pages worth of eight different slaves who would free themselves and learn how to read and write. I remember I broke my TV that summer, uh, right? I was so mad because uh, I just bought the new Star Wars game. I threw something against the wall and a light lit up over the book. It was like, like a movie, like, ah, like a light over the book. And then I just started reading the book and expanding uh, my knowledge because Africana Studies and Communications showed me that you don't have to put it down on a sheet of paper. It showed me you can talk it out. Mm -hmm. And it taught me how to learn 
uh, the Republicans respected, the Democrats respected, the independent, the colonizer, the colonized, the uh, scared person, the free person, the enslaver. And that that's what it did for me. And that's why I have so many different perspectives. And I know what each person's goal is. And African Studies and Communications did that. Education administration just confirmed it. This is why I tell people one thing about college, your freshman, sophomore year, whatever, your junior and senior year is so important. It's the teacher and the major you choose. Because mm -hmm. people think they do nursing and engineering is not for them. Choosing the right major is so important. Because education administration, me choosing that in grad school, the professor knew who I was and she made me work towards my strength. Because I was using world thinking, critical thinking skills to put that on paper. All she did was confirm everything that I was doing. She's like, you're headed in the right direction. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, right. the education is so important. The teacher you choose, actually not the teacher you choose, the, te the major, you need to have good support system because if you don't, if you will collapse. Right, yeah, absolutely. Like keeping people in your circle. Definitely uh, um, keeping your, I've found that keeping your circle small, you know, boiling it down over time Yes. So with the people that are going to hold you accountable, but also affirm you at the, in the same breath are the right ones to keep around for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> they're going to call you out on your shit. <laughs> they're going to make sure you do what you say you're going to do. Yes. Um, a, fr a friend of mine from college, um, he, he did some organizing um, and I remember he said this phrase that I've I've remembered for years. Like I keep coming back to it. Uh, it's been years now, but he said, "When you're right, you have nothing to hide." That's so true. And you are you are repeatedly affirming that sentiment, that that notion, um, with every time you're said no to by a politician or by anybody, any newspaper. anyone, newspaper, yeah, yeah. right, anytime they tell you no or like they tell you like they don't believe you like you have the statistics to back it up and also when you verbalize to them what they are what exactly they're saying no to like it just sounds so inhumane and illogical it's one of those things where it's like when you say something when you tell somebody when you say it out loud like what they're saying no to like wrong and cruel this is that you you're not giving the time to and and sh sharing support to you literally have nothing to lose. I just saw a documentary uh, the other day, and this is why I love documentaries and movies. YouTube. I, this is why I say I'm a visual learner. Um, I can tell when an article or documentary is BSing, but I saw this thing on Daniel Ellsbury, the guy who released the Pentagon Papers on uh, Vietnam. He sent this stack of papers to the Washington Post, and the reporters were thinking oh my gosh, should we post this? Should we post this? And he began to realize if we choke on this, we'll go down in history as cowards. And he's like, let's, let's post it. And you saw the Pentagon Papers changed the whole Vietnam. That's part of the reason why we left and more U.S. soldiers didn't die. So that's how I feel about some of these newspapers or reporters. They're like, they just choked on the issue. Yeah. If right. they had the Pentagon Papers, they wouldn't post it. And to this day, Washington Post, I mean, I'm an Al Jazeera, TRT World, Democracy Now guy, but Washington Post is the one of the most legitimate news sources to this day because they posted the Pentagon Papers. Think about WGN News. That's why I grew up watching my granny. 
those reporters get quick information from about the most recent shooting from who? The police department. If they start writing articles on the police department and police brutality, they're not gonna give them those resources and those sources anymore. So that's why a lot of these newspapers or articles, they're beholden into the bad news instead of finding solutions to the problem. And I'm just thinking about that. I'm like, that police chief is not gonna give them that information anymore if they find out I'm trying to do criminal justice reform. The news does not report solutions, they report news. The history book, the history books report are what report solutions. Yes, um, yes. And as time goes on, and this is the thing, like I tell people, as time goes on, when this becomes law 10, 20 years, when we have kids, our grandkids, you know how I remember around our age, we were in middle school, elementary school, like, wow, people really judge somebody for drinking at the same water fountain as a white person. 20 years from now, they're like, wow, people really defended wanting the police to shoot us unarmed for no reason. Instead of doing a mandatory 15. That's what it's going to be like. And you're going to tell your kid or your grandkid, like, yeah, no, people were okay with that. Mm -hmm. Yep. We're okay. Like, look, when our hair is gray, that's what's going to happen. Like, no. Like, when my granny's like, no, people were like that. Yeah. 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 10 years ago, I mean, the conversation of gay marriage was still a thing. And it was still so you know, divisive for, and for what, you know, five, you know, five years later, after five years after I left middle school, um, cause you're a year above me, six, <laughs> uh, it got legalized federally. Yeah. And now it's like, at this point it is, it's, it is across the board aside from a couple re reactionary evangelicals, unfortunately, like it is considered a solved issue. And I mean, there's still plenty of work to do within the LGBTQ plus uh, uh, department of of addressing issues. And but the point is, it's like, yeah, like now it's like we're telling our kids, like, yeah, ten years ago, people cared if if gay people got married, but now it's like, like now it's like, you know, like the fact that like that was a divisive issue, like, is it like, yeah, it, it's. It's crazy how things like that just dissolve from from the political narratives once something like that happens. I had a, a HF gay. So when I was going to do my BS with a homo more basketball messing with my mind, I remember I had an asthma attack that day. None of my heterosexual teammates helped me when I was having an asthma attack. Not my head coach, not my assistant coach. I walked out the gym barely breathing. And you know who showed up and saved me? A gay person in my high school, gave me their cell phone, I was able to call my parents and I was able to take my inhaler. And I, and that was my sophomore year of high school and I have my whole mind of how I look at people who are gay change. That one person who was getting bullied for being gay saved my life while my straight teammates and my head coach and assistant coach didn't even help me. I almost died. And that's when I've changed dramatically. It shouldn't take a life a, uh, uh, what is it called? A near life death experience of change, but I'm glad it did. Yeah, right. Like uh, it shouldn't take such a a extreme situation for you to see somebody else as a human being. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I'm glad it happened. And the thing is, that happened in high school than me in college, or me at 26, or me at 44. I'm happy that it happened now. Or 88. Please God, let me get to 88. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> so on our way out, Travis, um, I ask everyone the same two questions uh-huh. um, on as we close out. The first is, what keeps you up at night? Not knowing enough. Uh, my obsession with foreign policy is a sickness. Like my obsession with learning more about, I'm uh, specialized in North Africa and the Middle East. Uh, what keeps me up at night is when we choose war over diplomacy. When I have, I mean, hands on back is my focus. After that, I'm going to focus on more foreign policy. But like what keeps me up at night is how often we turn our backs on drone strikes, turn our backs on what we did in Iraq. Uh, I learned some, I told myself if I ever get my PhD, I'm writing a dissertation on the failures of the Iraq war. Uh, that, 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 that keeps me up at night, learning more about foreign policy, learning more about Mandela, Anwar Sadat, uh, Bimbella, like these, these African leaders or uh, Arab presidents, though, that's what keeps me up at night. Yeah, that's, that is, you should talk to my dad. He, he's, he's a huge history buff. Um, yeah, he, he's a whole library book that I should probably be reading too, because I'm not very, I, there's a lot I don't know too. That keeps me up at night as well. Like yeah. what I don't know. Yeah. Um, the Lord, and it's like- all at our fingertips. Yeah, and it's like where do you, where do you start? You know. Yeah, it's and that's why I tell you Al Jazeera. I'm going to send you a link Al Jazeera, Al Jazeera, because thinking about, for example, what most people don't know, like hey, Turkey took in four million refugees. We're putting sanctions on them, right? My thing is, we're not going to take in those refugees. Why are we? Yeah, we don't like their leader. Yeah, he's kind of authoritarian, but he's still taking those four million people. Why are we interfering? That's what keeps you up at night because we're not taking them in. But you know who will? Turkey does it. Al-Qaeda, ISIS. So now those people that uh, can have homes in these tents are now forced to commit terrorism. That keeps me up at night. Yeah, I, I think a lot about Palestine. Yes, yeah. That I was going to say in Israel. My uh, What the main reason why I was selected is because I talked about the Gaza Strip situation. Giving the people of Gaza asylum in all 27 Arab League countries. Yep. And that, that issue can be solved. Yeah, 100%. But Trump got rid of the, the, the uh, like humanitarian aid that was going to Palestinians. It's, it's, it's so awful, dude. Like that and yeah, and the whole conversation of US imperialism and how many military bases we have all over the country, all over the world is, that's enough to keep us up at night too. And how that U.S. imperialism is directly tied to the conversation of climate change, but that's for another day. I was um, <laughs> stopping us from being a homeless, but go ahead. Yep. Another day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're right. The second question is what puts you to sleep? Uh, reading enough. <laughs> I, I read until I am tired. Uh, not even reading, watching docu. Like I, I actually learn everything through videos, through Al Jazeera, TRT, Democracy Now. Like those are my sources where I, I like I said, I I look two thousands. I look in the nineteen nineties, nineteen eighties. I look at Khrushchev's old speeches. That puts me to sleep. I was like, okay, what was his thinking? And what was Khrushchev, the president of Russia's thinking in the nineteen sixties? What was Gorbachev's thinking in the, as president in the nineteen eighties? Or Boris Yeltsin in the 1990s, President Rush. Those put me to sleep because I'm like, 
why they're angry here will explain why they're angry now. Why they're happy here will explain why uh, they're happy now. I watched a lot of, I was on an Alex Gibney kick, uh, his documentaries for a while. And I watched his documentary on like, I, I didn't get to, through the whole thing, but it's about Putin's rise to power. Mm -hmm. um, and like, yeah, like Boris Yeltsin's death and everything. Like it's yeah. pretty terrifying, the political persecution that occurred post-Soviet Union. Um, but once again, it's for another day. Uh, thank you again, Travis Washington, for being on the show. Um, I can't thank you enough for coming here to speak um, on behalf of uh, of the Hands Up Act. And it's just great to see you. And uh, dude, I'm very excited to, to work together in the future, my friend. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, for everyone watching, I will be tagging uh, Travis's TED Talk. I'll be tagging uh, the article that was written about Travis's work and the Hands Up Act. And uh, also I'll be signing, of course, I'll be um tagging the link to the petition so you can sign um and endorse uh the hands up back please support it we need all the support we're at 2.7 million um i'll be signing it right after this so thanks for watching mr nice guy we will see you next time